Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon and welcome to Heritage Foundation's webinar, The Food Supply During the Pandemic, Facts from the Front Lines. My name is Darren Bax, and I'm a Senior Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. I want to thank all of you for, particip uh, for participating today. There's, there's so much going on and so much on all of our minds. So just thank you for taking the time to participate today. So one of the biggest concerns that all of us have is about food. And we go to the stores, we see empty shelves, and that understandably concerns us. We wonder if we have enough food. Are there food shortages going on? And, there's, and if not, are there going to be food shortages in the future? And even if we have food, is the food in fact safe? And then in the media, we hear tons of different stories. So what is actually happening with the food supply chain. So today we're going to hear from uh, some experts that will help answer these questions and a lot more. But before I introduce them, I wanna stress this program is not just about presentations, it's also about your questions. We wanna provide you answers as best we can. So if you look in the bottom of your right hand, uh, the right hand corner of your screen, you'll see something that says questions. So please use that to type in your questions and feel free to ask questions throughout the program. After the, present, after the presentations, we'll have a Q&A period. And we'll monitor that and we'll try to answer the questions to the best of our abilities. There are some other little buttons in the bottom right as well, like a raised hand. Um, don't uh, hit that because we're not monitoring that particular feature. So again, just hit the questions. So now I'm honored to introduce our presenters in the order they will present. Tom Adrecki is Vice President of Supply Chain and Logistics at the Consumer Brands Association. Tom represents the collective transportation, technology, sourcing, and sustainability priorities of America's consumer packaged goods industry. And from there, we're gonna go to Doug Baker, uh, Doug is a Food Retail Industry Relations Vice President for FMI, the Food Industry Association. Doug facilitates professional, non-competitive collaboration among member communities across private brands, technology, and supply chain resilience issue areas. Now, there is a third presenter that was um, supposed to present, and he still might. He's in Alabama, which got ravaged by weather last night and tornadoes. And we're hoping he can make it, and that'd be great if he could. So don't be surprised if he pops in, and I'll introduce him if he does make it. So at this point, I want to turn it over to Tom. Thanks so much, Darren, um, and really a pleasure to be part of this uh, this presentation today and to provide a little insight about what's happening on the front lines um, of America's food supply chains. Um, and I think as, as everyone is, is well aware and well versed, I don't think we've ever seen the word supply chain be in the media as much as it has been during the coronavirus epidemic. It's not as if uh, America's supply chains are, are normally uh, the sexiest topic of conversation, to be very frank. Um, it's not something that comes up very often, whether that's from a policy perspective in Washington or even just from a, a daily accountability standpoint, right? That there's sort of this assumption that when you go to the grocery store, uh, there's products on the shelf. Um, that's the assumption of living in America. And that's something that, that's like sort of a foundational element, I think, of like why people are just like, oh, like, of course we have that. Or you, you don't anticipate there ever being a toilet paper shortage. And yet somehow right now there is. And the question becomes why? Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of reasons for that. But I, I think the first thing that needs to be said 
uh, and that needs to be emphasized across the board, and I'm sure that, that Doug and others would back me up on this, is that America's food supply chain is strong and resilient. It is not something where, it, uh, you know, as if you're you're just going to, America's going to run out of food and, and people are going to starve and, and the whole thing is going to go to hell. Um, that's not the case. But what, what is the case is that the, the coronavirus, I think, has raised and surfaced certain vulnerabilities within the supply chain. And that could be within uh, private industries control, whether in terms of like how you went to a sort of specific efficiency drive over the course of time, uh, right? Like this hyper optimization and, and what, how do you need to recalibrate or rethink your operations in light of, of a pandemic? And it also presents some policy uh, questions or uh, ponderings that I think deserve to be uh, thought about going forward to increase resilience in, in America's supply chains. One of the ways that the Consumer Brands Association, just given the nature of our the companies that we represent and that are really consumer first uh, interest, has gone about looking at supply chains, was to, to, to conduct a weekly survey of everyday American consumers and to say, what was, what was their experience? I think that one of the things that that I think I always try to sort of lead with when I when I talk about supply chains is that um, you'll hear this messaging that's out there, right? That America's food supply chain is resilient, it's strong, and yet as a consumer, you go to the store and you don't see products on the shelf. And those things seem to not be compatible, right? There's this incongruity to, well, this is the experience that I have, and yet I'm being told that it's the exact opposite. And um, I, You'll then hear further messaging sometimes, right? If you look at like the NBOC dashboard or other things like that um, in Washington, and it'll say that it's due to quote artificial demand, um, that the, the sort of the out of stocks are, are not. And at the same time, right? Like as as a consumer myself, my experience of an empty shelf is not artificial. Um, there's a real problem or challenge there. And so what we were trying to do in some of this consumer research is peel back the layers of the onion, if you will, and say what are consumers experiencing? What are the demands that they're putting on the system or how are they preparing for coronavirus? Uh, and can we better understand then some of the, the potential policy solutions or ideas that we would want to recommend to government going forward because of that? Um, and so in that research, one of the things I think that is very obvious, right, is mounting concern over coronavirus and its impact on supply chains. And so week over week, you see more uh, participants in the survey express that uh, they are preparing uh, in some capacity. Uh, that sort of, I think, reached uh, a level capacity, right? That like most Americans at this point are aware that coronavirus is a thing, uh, that they're concerned about it, and that they're therefore preparing. Um, when it comes to then their experience at a, at a store level of this, what we've seen week over week is that for the most part, there's also increasing concern, especially around certain types of high demand products. Those could be household and cleaning supplies. You'll see on this chart here, um, where there's this mounting concern about access to those items. Um, I am in, sort of enthused by the fact that we saw sort of a peak spike in the food and beverage product space, and that's since leveled off, I think, a little bit. Um, I think that's because of the sort of initial panic buying that was out there in the market, and that has sort of since returned to a level of normalcy. I, I, I do think that one of the things that we've also seen from our manufacturers and when we've talked to our manufacturers is that there is now, in, in, in lieu of that panic buying, you saw this initial spike, I think it was somewhere up upwards of 120 to 130% increased demand initially uh, in that panic buying phase, and that's since leveled off to what most people ascribe to around 30% increased sustained demand uh, just in comparison to normal times. And that's the equivalent uh, of basically of an Easter holiday all year long. And why is that? It's because people are at home, they're sheltering in place, they're feeding their family. Uh, and if you go to the, the next slide, you can sort of, I think, start to see um, what people are, are, are looking at and, and trying to you know, plan ahead for. Um, so in the talking to most consumers, most consumers are at this point actually very well stocked on essential products, or at least I think in, in their, their mind. One of the open questions um, that I have going forward is the extent to which we see this preparation then translate into uh, whether that'll be continued demand in the future, whether people will sort of realize that they overbought, if they've underbought, how well that uh, advanced planning matches the actuality of their consumption habits. Um, I know that in my household, for example, 
I think that we all went out, we bought products, and then we're shocked to discover that actually when you stay at home, you, you eat a lot more, uh, you snack a lot more. There's other products, though, that you don't uh, consume a lot more. And so one of the interesting things to watch, I think, in the, in the food supply chain is the extent to which certain products continue to experience increased demand. That could be household basics. Uh, it could be milk, eggs, cheese, uh, sort of the types of things that uh, a family might regularly eat, uh, except for the fact that they they might eat that regularly, let's say on a weekend. Um, but now that that consumption habit is different because the types of products that they normally consume during the week, maybe it's like an on-the-go uh, protein shake or something like that. Actually, they're not consuming a lot of, of those. And so you saw maybe an initial spike in demand for that product, but in the beverage space, uh, you saw a decreased decline overall. It, on the flip side, I think one of the, the funny things is that you also see this increased sustained demand for alcoholic beverages uh, during coronavirus too. So even within product uh, sectors, if you will, there's different demand consumption habits uh, that consumers are experiencing. And I think it'll take some time for the industry to fully assess and respond both at the manufacturing level and at the, the grocery store retail level to what are those new consumption habits and demands that are present on the system. But I think that everybody is now well aware of the fact that there is this increased sustained 30% on average demand and are, and are preparing adequately for that. Uh, in talking to a lot of our manufacturing executives, they're all extremely confident that they can meet that sustained demand. Uh, I think that there's a number of issues on their mind that are, that are prescient given some of the, the ongoing circumstances around uh, PPE availability and other factors there that are influencing how they think about their strategy going forward. And that's something uh, that I think deserves to be mentioned as part of this conversation as to what is the resiliency of America's food supply chains. There's a number of questions that I think that are drawn out of uh, the coronavirus pandemic, how it's uh, influencing our attitudes to how you design supply chains, how do you manage them, and then what are the things that are necessary. Uh, that we may have even taken for granted ourselves to how those, uh, those that system has to work uh, and, and what's necessary uh, in order to facilitate that end-to-end -end movement of goods and services uh, from the agricultural side to our manufacturing facilities on, on trucks to retail stores to the end consumer. And there's a whole host of, of products and services that are necessary, not just the physical ingredients themselves or the input products, but this could be um, gloves or hairnets or uh, soap or soap dispensers themselves. There's actually a, a run currently, not just on the soap and on the hand sanitizer, but on the, the physical pumps that you would see in, a, in sort of an industrial warehouse. Uh, and so there's this strain that's been put on the system uh, just in aggregate, I think is presenting some unique challenges to how do you, uh, as an industry, represent those needs? And then how do you assign or ascribe where does uh, the food industries uh, I would say, need fall relative to the medical supply chain, which of course comes first. Uh, and given the, the demand that is being put on that system for, for personal protective equipment uh, and some of the sanitation, sanitation and cleaning supplies, of course that, has to, that gap has to be filled first. But then when it comes to shoring up America's food supply chain, I think that really needs to be a, like a, a, a crucial second uh, bucket, right, where you have to have, if you're going to have people shelter in place, they have to then have continued access to the everyday goods and products that are essential to their well-being and health so that they don't need to go to the store as much or they don't need to uh, worry about their own sort of personal circumstance, um, but that they can safely uh, quarantine themselves or sort of stay uh, out of harm's way. Um, so there's, a, I think, a number of, of policy issues, like I said, that are raised or presented by this. It's something that the Consumer Brands Association, in, in partnership with our companies and other associations, has uh, increasingly uh, raised to not only members of Congress, but the administration and others, just to really get a, a, a coordinated uh, approach to how do you improve the resiliency and competitiveness of America's food supply chain? Uh, how do you, like I said, tackle all of those uh, interrelated pieces along the way. And that's why I think that we've been so successful in partnering with other organizations, whether it's the American Trucking Association or um, our colleagues at FMI or, or others to say, you know what, they're across the, the whole range of that supply chain. There's a host of, of stakeholders that need to be um, shorn up and to be supported in this time of crisis so that, uh, that consumers ultimately 
uh, and everyday citizens can can um, have the products and, and services that they need. Thank you so much, Tom. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy to be able to say that Brent Udo has actually made it. Um, as I said, he's been ravaged by some storms down there in Alabama. So Brent, thank you so much for making it. Let me just briefly introduce you, Brent. Brent is the Chief Relationship Officer at truckstop.com, which helps truck drivers and freight brokers manage their freight from end to end. Brent is a transportation logistics professional and he's been that professional in that field for over 20 years and, and has tons of leadership experience in, in those fields. So Brent, take it away. Well, thanks, Darren. I appreciate Tom's comments as well. And, and thanks, uh, our thanks from truckstop.com to you and everyone at the Heritage Foundation for having us on today. Uh, you guys do a, a lot in the leadership of the country and, and it's appreciated. Uh, trucking in, in general is, is, a, is, is involved in everything that goes on. Um, um, if, for those of us that don't know the company that I work for, truckstop.com is a marketplace. We're a marketplace that helps freight, uh, America's freight, move across the, uh, the systems that it's built on. Uh, inside of our marketplace, we handle around 100 million loads a year. And uh, we connect 65,000 trucking companies with uh, third-party logistics players that uh, move the freight. So I say this because I, I think it's important that you kind of understand who truckstop.com is because most people have never heard of us if you've not been in trucking. And um, um, you, it's hard to say um, truck is, it's hard to say you know, what's going on in America without talking about the freight, the goods and services that, that take care of America and we at Truckstop get a, a really unique point of view into the marketplace. Around 20% of all the freight that's moved in America is seen in our network uh, each year. Um, so uh, the first slide that, that you're looking at on the screen is, is very unique to the market. And what it does is it shows a, a three month look back at what freight has done inside of, of trucking. And, and it's important to look at freight because you can understand how easy or how hard it is to get things in the market. And we all have certainly experienced that over the last few weeks with uh, the challenges in, in just getting what we need from our, our grocery stores uh, to help run our lives uh, in, in this pandemic. Um, the slide, if you look to the left, you see that a normal market for uh, America is around uh, 300,000 to 500,000 loads a day. And you see that in January, it was about that. And it was that, and it started building up right before uh, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, broke out. And, and I use this slide because I think it's important to look at what's a challenge for goods to get around America. So, so we as a, as a, as a, as a citizenry uh, can, can run our lives. Um, if, as you look to the right on that slide, you'll notice that it goes from about 500,000 to 700,000. The reason that's significant is that when it moves above normal levels, it's hard for the trucks that are available inside the marketplace. And to give you an idea, there's about 3.5 million commercial trucks inside the marketplace. Uh, and when, when, as it moves up past a normal market, it becomes very, very difficult uh, for goods to move. And so they get hard to get, go to the store. Um, one of the things that, as you look at this, you'll see that it, it, as it goes over to the right, it comes down very fast. And so that creates a problem inside the market when it comes down fast. Any shocks in an economic curve make it uh, challenging for the, the, the people that work inside of that, that, that economy. And those are the, the, the truckers and the, the brokerage companies that work inside of this market. As you see, the, the, the curve has come way down, which means uh, there's, there's less goods that are needed, needed to move. And the reason that's a challenge is that we work in a dynamic marketplace when freight is moved, of, it goes up and down. And as there's, less, as, there's, as there's less freight in the marketplace, it makes it harder for America's trucking companies, the, um, the ones that move the freight to succeed and survive as they're needed as things come up. So that, that's, a, that's an important part to look, look at the market uh, when, when you look at that, because you can look at the ebbs and flows of how the economy is doing. When there's more freight in the market, the economy is usually growing. When there's less freight in the market, the economy is usually struggling. And certainly through COVID-19, we're going to have some challenges. If you'll go to the next slide. Uh, one of the questions that was asked is, um, how are shippers and brokers and carriers, and those are the three type of companies that work to move freight, how do they fit into the food supply chain and why they're important? Well, um, it, it's um, no, no greater time than today to realize how important it is for the things that we normally 
you know, especially in this Amazon type economy where we're used to getting things uh, the next day or even, even the same day, uh, to see how much of a challenge it can be uh, when they're not there. Uh, so how do they fit in? Well, they, they are uh, part of the food supply chain. And uh, without them, the food, food doesn't get back and forth. The reason that I say this is that um, out of the 500,000 companies that just serve freight, there's about 900,000 total transportation companies and about 500,000 move the, the, the refrigerated goods and the van goods that get, get to us. Um, uh, about 80% of all of the freight in America goes on a truck. So at one time or another, it's going to hit a truck. And it doesn't matter whether it comes from a, a container, whether it's offshore or whether it's, 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 it's in a different part of the country, it's going to hit a truck at one time or the other. And that's why the, the, the U.S. trucking transportation uh, network is so important to the actual food getting back. To give you an idea, uh, we saw during a five-week period of the spike on that, that, that previous chart that I showed you on the spike, we saw a 141% increase in refrigerated goods being moved. We saw a 50% increase in van foods, and that was all food and food-related uh, household products being moved. So you can see where that creates a heck of a challenge inside of a marketplace to get it there. Uh, the, the, how, they, how else they fit in is that our entire segment of the marketplace, by the way, one in every six jobs, excuse me, one in every 11 jobs is a trucking related job. The trucking related jobs were deemed essential by the FMCSA in order to get the goods in. That shows you how connected they are to the overall food supply. Um, but uh, to give you an idea of, um, the surge and, and how those things happen to, is that those 100, 100% increase in some areas and 40% increase in other create a heck of a demand in the marketplace to get those things in. And the big issue for the food being moved is how it was packaged. A lot of it that we that we have seen where, where you've seen a giant challenge in the employment inside of the food related industries is how it was packaged. And I, I didn't look at that, that I was talking to our chief economist and he said, he said it, it's not that we didn't have enough food, it's that's how it's packaged. So it's, you've got to change it from industrial packaging into retail packaging so it can be sold at the stores. And that's a big shift. And, and making that shift is not easy for our economies to do. Uh, go to the next slide. So what kind of challenges are uh, truck drivers facing? To kind of give you an idea, there's 3.5 million commercial truck drivers uh, in, in the, the overall heavy-duty freight transportation. So the big rig trucks you see going down the road, there's about 3.5 million of those uh, men and women out there serving America. Uh, and um, to kind of give you an idea, for the first couple of weeks of this, there were all kinds of challenges where uh, areas were closed, they couldn't get food, they couldn't get, um, they couldn't stop to rest. There are all kinds of challenges because of the concerns on, on the pandemic. Uh, today, the biggest concern is, is what you hear in the news, which is the, the PPE stuff, sort of, the, although it's a little more basic for a trucker um, inside of food transportation, it's that uh, they don't have cleaning supplies to clean their truck. They don't, they have trouble getting to places and, and taking showers. You can't park a big rig in just any old place. And, uh, but fortunately, um, America's network of the thousands and thousands of truck stops and travel centers on America are doing a, a good job. It's really that the supplies are, are really uh, not available for truckers to be able to, um, uh, to be able to clean what, what, what they need to in order to be, to uh, be able to be taken at the docks. And that's another big one of the pro big problems where you've got employment issues uh, with trucking companies. There, there are some areas in which they're not deemed essential. So uh, there's docking challenges. And what I mean by docking, so a delivery place, delivery place where they're bringing the goods into. Uh, so that's been a big challenge because either the times are limited or there's no staff to unload. So it's a big, a big challenge. Now, the, the network itself is, 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 a, is adjusting and accommodating to it. So that's not as big an issue as it was the first three or four weeks uh, when you saw the, the, big, the big surge of freight. Uh, to the uh, and also uh, food is food was an issue. I'll, if you'll go back one slide, food was an issue, but it's really being taken care of well by the travel centers that are out there. Uh, there's even they've even authorized the, the uh, government even authorized where food trucks could deliver uh, food to truckers at truck stops. So that's that's the place that they can go to. They can park their their vehicle where they can actually get food. So so that's a wonderful thing that's going on. On to the next slide. One of the things that was asked of me was um, how's how's the overall health concerns of, the, uh, of the, the truck drivers that are out there and the people that work in the offices, the, the overall concerns. And then what are the concerns to the food supply? Um, well, uh, we do a lot of research inside, at trucksop.com and one of our partners is Bloomberg. And Bloomberg does a, a quarterly study and the latest quarterly report, which just came out uh, three days ago, uh, 
was a, was a really unique question. Some of the sentiment for moving freight is getting tighter and tighter. In other words, it's harder and harder for them uh, to be able to run their businesses because of the challenges in the marketplace. But the big thing was what you see on the slide here, which is 63% of drivers in the marketplace are concerned for their overall exposure to COVID-19. Now that's a big deal. Now, you know, these guys are, they, they can't not be out there for, for, our, for our health, for, for our, uh, for our uh, sustainability of America. So, so they can't not be out there. And, and this, is, this is how they, they make their living. Without it, uh, they, they, go, they go out of business. Um, but the unique thing is the second part of the slide, which is even though 63% are concerned, 74% say that's not keeping them from doing their jobs, which is remarkable. I think it's remarkable how the American spirit of the, of the U.S. transportation network uh, is there. I mean, they're there to help. They, they, they don't consider themselves heroes. They say, man, those are the people in the hospitals that are helping the ones that are, affect, that are, that are medically affected. We just, we're just out there trying to do what we do best, which is to, to, help, America, to, to help America succeed. Um, the last question I'll cover is um, what's, uh, what's, uh, what's, what could financially create a big problem inside the marketplace if you'll go to the next slide? And I'll end here. Um, one of the biggest challenges is, is, is cash flow inside of, inside of transportation. Um, they run on extremely thin margins. It's, a, it's somewhat of a commoditized industry. So they run on very, very thin margins. In other words, they don't make a 30% return on their business every day. It's less than, usually less than 10% in a lot of areas, less than 5%. So um, the big challenge is, is cash flow and, and finances. Uh, and I bring up the CARES Act because it, it was nice that that happened for the American public and American businesses. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing that we as a, a citizenry can do, do, do things like that and our government can administer it. But the challenge is this. The challenge is this is that trucking is dominated by small businesses and micro small businesses. Absolutely dominated. 90% of the companies are small business and micro business. Micro business is like one or two people running, running a business. And um, the challenge is, is not that the money's that, that not that they they don't know the money's not there. It's just that it's hard for them to get their hands onto it because the the banking uh, setup is you have to work with one of your your known banks or a bank that has access uh, to the the the, the CARES Act uh, payroll protection money. But the issue the, the issue is that they're typically not writing loans that are that small. Banks have a challenge with that because it's such a small return them and then they're overwhelmed they're, they're to be administered to the bank so that's going to create a big challenge for us but 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 i think there's some areas in which the people are going to be able to work through it to be able to get to be able to get to it it'll just take time and does it so the big thing is can can enough cash flow happen in enough time to where when the big surge comes back and we come out of this and all those goods have to get back to the warehouses back to the retailers and back to full supply are there are there going to be enough trucks available to be able to do that and so we at Truck Stop certainly are, are, are behind helping that happen in the marketplace. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brent. Um, now, um, Doug, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Thank you, Darren, um, and appreciate uh, uh, the other two speakers. So by now, uh, you, you've all seen just exactly, you know, how, uh, what goes into getting food to a shelf. Um, and so I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on inside of the retail uh, environment. Uh, for those of you who are not aware, uh, FMI, the Food Industry Association, represents retailers from one store operators uh, to multi-state and multinational uh, retailers, um, wholesalers and distributors that distribute to those uh, retailers, as well as food manufacturers. Uh, and we support our members in, in three uh, key areas, government affairs, uh, food safety, and then key business topics and activities similar to supply chain resilience and emergency response. So on February 25th, um, FMI stood up its crisis response team to start preparing uh, the industry for what we were learning from our members who had business in China. And uh, we quickly uh, understood that although we have a lot of things in place to deal with disaster, we deal with disasters on an annual basis. Um, and retailers and this supply chain is no better than one the public needs us the most. Uh, so that we had that um, that experience, but we also understood that we were going to be rewriting this playbook, and we have been rewriting this playbook almost on a daily basis. Uh, as Tom mentioned, over the weeks of March 8th through March 22nd, retailers and this entire grocery supply chain experienced unprecedented demand as consumers uh, loaded their pantries 
largely in part to concern that they would not be able to access those food and supplies that they need. Um, and so this immediately became the storyline was as a result, many wanted to know, will we have enough food? Um, and the short answer, as you heard from, from Tom, is yes. Uh, this country is, is, uh, has an abundance of food. Uh, we also export food, which many of those exports slowed down during this time frame. Uh, but will we have shortages? Absolutely, yes. You can only produce so much food in a day in many of the manufacturers that both CBA and FMI re represent were running 24-7 uh, to maintain, uh, to even try to keep up with the demand that, was, that, that we were currently experiencing. Uh, also, one thing to think about too, as Tom alluded, a lot of people were eating at home. So we know that um, on what I call blue sky days, uh, when we're not in the middle of a crisis, 54 cents of every dollar is being spent on food away from home. And so a large percentage of that came back to the grocery store and back in, in homes, uh, which you know also pushes uh, uh, puts a lot of strain on an already strained supply chain. And why we've continued to see those sales levels stay at a higher level because we're not going out. And we do appreciate the restaurants that are, um, that are still able to offer uh, takeout or delivery. Uh, that is a great um, alternative to cooking at home, and it's a great way to support that industry. So we'd encourage everybody to do that. One of the things that we did um, to partner with the food service industry is we created a, a, a joint venture with the International Food Distributors Association. And understanding that their sales were starting to, 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 to climb because they've either been asked to close or shut their in-store in dining, um, they had a lot of inventory in their supply chain. And so through this partnership, we were able to make that inventory, um, make those uh, trucks and drivers, the resources, labor resources, as well as capacity in their uh, facilities, make that available to grocery retailers. And the way we did it very early on, it was a fillable form. And we're getting ready to do version two, which will be much more high tech, but we needed to move quick, right? So um, we created a fillable form, both sides, both parties were able to fill that form out. The food service side was able to tell people what they want, what they needed, or what they had, I'm sorry. And then the retail side was able to tell them what they needed. And again, product, people, and equipment, and uh, capacity in warehouses. And so we had uh, some really good early results, and we've been able to move through some inventory um, that would have been sitting in the supply chain uh, on the food service side. Um, I was also asked to talk a little bit about e-commerce. So one thing that we saw uh, in uh, China, where one of our member companies has their global headquarters in Wuhan, China, to be exact, is at a certain point over there, they saw brick and mortar sales actually decline pretty significantly and everything moved online. Uh, so we started having those conversations with our member companies to start talking about how can they increase um, uh, their windows, because when you order, you have to order within a window. You can only do so many windows in a day because of the labor that it requires to support that in, that pick movement. Um, and if you weren't, how could we quickly get you up to speed in doing that? Is it even taking an order by phone? So we had retailers across the country that were really just moving as quickly as they could to start getting that up and running. As an example, you know, typically, uh, again, blue sky days, a retailer's percent of sales on average for the country online is between two and 3% of their total store sales. Um, they're now seeing anywhere from 12 to 20 to 25% of their total store sales. And that's a very labor intensive activity, right? The consumer's not coming into the store and doing the picking for themselves. Now an employee has to do that. And so what we saw is, as, as uh, stores were closing down certain full service areas of their store, um, could be uh, the deli, the bakery, the hot bars, the salad bars, the seafood, then they were redeploying that labor. And we uh, had great partnership with the local unions uh, to be able to get them to be able to move that labor into other areas. And some of it was for uh, this activity of online. Some of it was for just refilling the shelf and others was for developing a sanitation team. Um, you know, one of the things that this uh, industry was starting to really work in and in pilot in was developing micro fulfillment centers. And those micro fulfillment centers take stress off of the retail store. Uh, unfortunately, we were still very early on in that phase. So some retailers did have those micro fulfillment stores, but many of them we're actually doing the pick 
inside the store. So if the store was feeling uh, out of stocks and shortages, then both was online going to feel those same things. So we, we actually anticipate micro-fulfillment centers uh, to be increased, the development of those, whether they're in-store or they're a standalone, or maybe they close a store that's slow and just turn it into a dark store. We think moving forward, micro-fulfillment will become a very big play um, uh, within this industry. Uh, another big concern was around um, food safety concerns, such with produce and bulk foods. So the CDC um, yet has, there's no known transmissions uh, through food based on the CDC yet. Uh, so you're perfectly fine going in and picking your own uh, fruits and vegetables and putting them in a bag. Similar to any other day of the year, um, and I'm, I'm the perfect example of one person that doesn't do it. I don't bring my produce home and wash it off, uh, but we should be doing that under normal circumstances. And so that would just be the recommendation is when you bring home your apples and oranges and, and lemons and, and otherwise, just, just give them a good wash um, before you use them. You're going to cook them. Um, you're going to peel them. Um, so you should, there should be no issues there as well. Um, what I talked about early on was um, the, uh, the, the uh, pandemic preparedness uh, for, for the industry. That also included a number of uh, business practices for in-store sanitation and person-to-person -person contact. And as we've moved through this, we've actually continued to update that document, which you can see on your screen. And that's become a document that's, that's both utilized um, uh, fully by the industry and or used as a benchmark. And, and much of it is either through business practices that we've learned through this, um, but it's also based in CDC and FDA science. So uh, there's a lot of uh, information in there and a lot of support for retailers to be able to take that uh, information and use it. It's also really important with a food safety standpoint, um, safety in, in general and sanitation in general in order to maintain uh, your labor force. As you heard uh, from Brent, um, you know, people are concerned um, and we know that this is person to person contact primarily. Um, and so it's important for us to, and we immediately started putting into place social distancing measures within the side the, the grocery store. So you see in the news cycle, um, many of them were putting up plexiglass. So as you came to the transaction area, uh, there was a plexiglass divider between you and the cashier. Um, we also, uh, we had a couple retailers that actually created social distancing monitor techs and they'd have a, a shirt on and, and they were the social monitors and they would go around the store and if they saw that uh, customers were getting too close, then they would politely go up and ask, ask them to, to separate. That was also the same for employees. Um, so they were keeping an eye out on every everybody uh, within the store. Um, but we also then started looking at other things. And again, learning from our member companies who had business in China and business in Italy, we were seeing some really quick uh, early uh, opportunities with putting space uh, tape down on the, and decals down on the floor in order to uh, encourage that spacing within the store. And, and most recently, um, you also saw where retailers were increasing uh, sick, sick days, uh, they were increasing and giving hazard pay, um, and then now based on a CDC recommendations now, face coverings are now an option for staff if you want to use and wear them in the store. Um, but it's ultimately about uh, understanding your surroundings, having the hand sanitizer, doing the self-sanitation, um, and making sure that you're keeping that distance between you and the consumer, both for your safety and the consumer's safety. Another thing that we did um, to try and sort of shore up uh, labor force and understanding you know, that we had a number of other industries that were being asked to close is uh, we last weekend, weekend before last, we kicked off a talent exchange program, which was powered by Eightfold AI. And what that does is it allows the industries that were actually um, at being asked to close, and, and instead of furloughing their employees, they can put them up on a platform. And when they go on that platform, it allows them and the potential hiring company to start having a conversation. And it identifies open positions, um, you know, based on title and and based on uh, what the job uh, tasks are. And it allows uh, those folks that are in that portal uh, to be able to see those and then they can start that interaction. We, like I said, we launched it last uh, Friday and on Monday we already had 500,000 people in that portal. 
Uh, it is it started off as it's a business to business thing. So uh, as an example, a, a company like Macy's, they could enter their entire associate uh, pool into that uh, platform, which then makes them available to have conversations with grocery retailers, product manufacturers, all the way through the supply chain. So that's something else that we've just launched and it's been going extremely well. A couple glitches early on and we worked through them. Again, we're, we're sort of working at a pretty fast pace um, through this whole process. So um, I would just say for anybody listening, um, you know, food supply is abundant. Will we see shortages? Absolutely, we will see shortages. Um, you know, what does sick associates mean uh, in, in the manufacturing world? You've seen a lot in the press lately about um, meat production plants that are closing because they've had a number of associates that were confirmed with COVID-19. Um, and, and that does impact the supply chain, but it's not critical. And what I would like to make sure we understand is that there's a critical disruption. So I don't know if you've heard the lightning going on over top of me, Brent, we're starting to feel some of the pain that you went through last night. Um, but when we have a critical disruption in the supply chain, typically during a, a hurricane, it's when we have a power outage or we have flooding or we have wide debris fields and it actually shuts off that supply chain and it's not able to get to its end point. We don't have that today. We do have instances where we have associates uh, confirmed and we might have a production facility that closes down for three uh, days to a week, um, but uh, there's you know, well over 600 protein production facilities across the country. And each one of them does a various amount of food. Some are, are, are primary source, some are secondary sources. But what that will do is it will move. It will require some time in order for it to move. So you'll see those shortages. Um, and then hopefully by the time it moves, then the facility that, was, that did close voluntarily to do that sanitation and allow their employees to get some rest and get healthy again, will come right back on pretty quickly. So that's it for me, Darren. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. And now let's go quickly into questions. Um, again, if you have questions, if you look in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, just click on questions and type in your questions. And guys, um, we'll try to move through these relatively quickly. We do have a decent number of questions. I think the, the first question is actually a fairly tough question for you guys, so I'll ask it from one of our participants. What happens if truck drivers or, or port workers or grocery store workers refuse to work? You want to start with Brent with the truck? Yeah, we'll that's a good one for me. Um, and then we're in a world of trouble. Um, we, we depend on everything uh, to get to a location, I mean, we're not all in one city, and uh, it's 300 and what 38 million of us, something like that, and we're spread out all over the place. If if our supply chain of supplies <laughs> is not, if we if we have a shortage or a um, challenge for them them not being able to work, what if what if they what if they refuse? What if they can't work? Um, then we've got a serious issue. As a company, as a country, uh, no doubt. I, I, I have. Uh, I do not think that that's not the nature of the marketplace. The nature of the marketplace is to be very patriotic, very supporting of America, very supporting of people. Uh, so, in my 22 years in in the different challenging economies, even the Great Recession that we went through, truckers still showed up for work uh, because that's what they do. Uh, that's that's how they operate. I think it was Brent that uh, had made the comment that, uh, that the, the truck driver, uh, truckers don't see themselves as heroes in this circumstance. And I don't think that any of us represents an industry uh, where the employees see themselves in that same capacity. But I do think that the issue of, of ab potential absenteeism um, or workplace safety uh, sort of raises the stakes when it comes to how do you ensure that the employees have access to the supplies that they need. And so Brent, uh, myself, uh, Doug, all mentioned the sort of the, the PPE component uh, and to what extent you can ensure that there's, there's that safety element across the supply chain, I think is really important to ensuring that continuity of service. Yeah, and I would, I would agree with both um, 
you know, one thing that we've seen come out of this um, is a lot of patriotism. My brother works in a grocery store. I grew up in a grocery store um, and it's just what we do. You wake up in the morning and you go to work um, and you might be going in uh, in a difficult situation, but you continue to do it. And you do it because you're taking care of a community. You know, those retail grocery stores become the center of the community. And, and during a, a difficult time, like Brent just went through with the, the severe tornado down there in Alabama, a lot of times that, that grocery store becomes the community center where people get information, right? So that's a, that's a, a real a dependency on the community and you, you take that with you. My community became my family. I saw those people in the store every week and sometimes multiple times during the week. And so I felt like I was taking care of them. Uh, but it is extremely important for us to understand that we need to, as a country, make sure that those individuals have what they need to do their business. My wife is an ICU nurse, right? So when we talk about masks, I think about her and I think about how important it is for her to have that mask and how important it is for my brother to have that mask. Um, and so, you know, we need to make sure that we take care of those individuals so they can continue to take care of the country the way they have been. And I applaud every one of them. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to try to consolidate a couple of questions that we're, we, we have received. And it's related to the Smithfield, and they closed a plant, and they've had some cases of uh, the coronavirus. And what is what do you think the impact of that is, or just kind of the impact on the coronavirus with um, animal protein in general? Sure. You want to take your time, or you want me to go? Um, why don't you, just because you jumped in, why don't you take it and then I can follow up with some commentary too. Sure. Yeah, as, as I mentioned sort of in my, my dialogue, you know, anytime you have an employee or a facility shut down, it creates a ripple effect on the supply chain. Uh, there are uh, multiple produ producers across the country. So it really depends on how much output that producer was, was doing. And in, if, that, if that supply chain can move, it can move to another producer and that they can then elevate theirs. Um, what it does do is it sort of backs it all the way up, all the way to the farm. So that's the other thing that we also have to keep in mind is that as you're bringing cattle or pork or whatever to the slaughterhouse to be processed, that whole process gets backed up. And so that's why you're seeing in the news, um, you're seeing some where, where eggs are being crushed or milk is being dumped. You know, when you take the food service industry out of the equation that was doing 54 cents of every dollar, that's significant. Uh, so um, then if you add on top of it where you have to shut a facility down for a period of number of days, uh, that continues to back that inventory up. The good thing is, is that there are multiple production facilities across the country. And if they can pick up where the other one left off, then we will see shortages, but it won't be critical disruptions. And I think that what Doug said is exactly right. I think when you look at just that facility, I want to say it's like three or 4% of America's total pork production. Um, but there is that resiliency built into the system just by virtue of the fact that you have a number of, of distribution channels, of producers, of just the scale of it. And not to make that like too big to fail analogy, um, because America's food system is not too big to fail. Um, but it, but it, there is a built-in resilience just by the inherent nature of it. Um, but I do think, uh, again, and not to like continue to belabor the same point over and over again, um, but it raises also some of the unique aspects, particularly of uh, protein manufacturing or of distribution because of uh, just the proximity of, of workers, generally speaking, within those facilities um, because of how, the, you know, it, it's much easier, let's say, to institute certain uh, changed production practices within, let's say, a, a beverage manufacturing context than it is within a protein manufacturing contest, just by the different nature of those businesses. Uh, and so I think it also speaks to the need for um, not just standards across industry, but also to recognize some of the unique constraints that those industries are under. Great, and there's a, um, a, a related question, and we should move through these quickly, because um, so we have a lot of questions. Um, You've seen some farmers that are dumping crops or dumping milk. Um, what does that mean? You know, what's going on? On the dairy side, uh, Darren, um, this time of year, cows are producing more milk than they produce throughout any other time of the year. This is what they call flushing season. 
And so there typically is dumping that's going on right now, even when we are not in a situation like this. But if you, uh, if, if, with the understanding that we shut our schools down all the way through college and many food service, again, it's, it's you now have an, a surplus of inventory. The uh, uh, Dairy Association worked with many of their, grow, uh, their producers wherever possible. They, they worked with them to start making um, those components of dairy. So butter and yogurt and ice cream and increase those inventories. But it's, it's almost impossible uh, to be able to absorb the additional inventory that has now become available because of food service and schools closing down. Hey, Brent, um, yes, sir. question for you. Um, any kind of, anything you're hearing directly from the truckers about concerns that they have, um, like regarding rest areas, things like that? Yeah, that's a, that was a, thank you for asking that question. Um, there was a lot of concern with that, especially in, in some uh, Northeastern states in the beginning, because what happened is that they, they shut down all the rest areas, period. What they, what they did is the states, the uh, FMCSA uh, got uh, contacted back to the, uh, the state DOTs and said, you gotta, you gotta keep your rest areas open. Now granted, it is still a state issue, but we don't hear of any one single state shutting down all the rest areas. There are a few that are shut down. They're shut down to the, well, it's a couple things. Number one, they're shut down to the public. So they, they shut down the actual building. So there's no staff there, but they're still allowing the truckers to park. And that, that's the big issue. It's, it's a truck parking issue. So uh, my understanding is uh, Pennsylvania had a little bit of challenge in the beginning, but uh, they opened most all of them back up, especially on the thoroughfares where the truckers need them the most. So uh, we're not hearing that anymore, but uh, certainly it was an issue in the beginning. Thanks. Um, this is kind of a policy question. Um, a lot of states have been waiving regulatory and licensing requirements. Um, are there any types of restrictions that governors or state legislators can temporarily waive or change to support the food supply? A number of states have already done this and it's just by virtue of emergency declarations, but I think that the, the truck weight limit is something um, that continues to be of interest, at least to the industry in terms of just facilitating the greater, more efficient movement of goods. I know that there's some, I think, uh, existing concerns from an insurance standpoint and other aspects there within the trucking industry side. Um, that maybe have not allowed that type of additional movement to take place. Um, but it's an area, I think, where there's a need for continued dialogue and, and exploration really at a, at a federal level too. Yeah, to follow up on Tom's point, it, it's a, that's a state issue. Uh, you could have it approved in one state and not approved to the neighboring state and the goods have to stop. You find that in the specialized hauling, the really oversized stuff. But uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's that's um, a longer, solution to it but certainly something to be looked at so what has been the impact on supply chains from canada and mexico have you seen anything at all i can take at least from a manufacturing side of things i think what it raises the need for and this is this is happening within the u.s as well when you look at different uh localized restrictions or orders or definitions of things but anytime you have cross-border trade there's sort of this inherent need for uh, added uniformity across uh, those lines uh, and when it comes to what has been defined as critical infrastructure or as essential industry you see varying interpretations of that just like you do in the u.s uh, right and so the dhs and csa can put out guidance on well, this is what critical infrastructure is here, um, but that may be different within any of the Canadian provinces. It could be different in Mexico. I know that a number of our members, for example, have issues right now in, in Mexico uh, due to plant closures or facility closures, just as a sort of a, I want to say like a fun example, but like beer, for example, is an allowed critical infrastructure uh, within the US context. It is not in Mexico. Uh, and so there's a number of, of breweries that have had to shut down, which uh, which I want to say, okay, yes, that it impacts beer production, but that also impacts clean water production. It impacts grain or sort of the that part of the supply chain as well. And, and from a livestock feed perspective, in terms of what that product eventually becomes. Um, and so there's, a, I think, a, a need for that uniformity across uh, both state 
and country lines. And that's something that we're, uh, have been in conversations with the State Department and other parts of the administration on. Thank you. We'll kind of move to a, a lightning round here because we've got like five minutes left. And I've got a couple of questions for you, Doug. I'm going to me ask the first one. We'll do that quickly and then the second one. And what happened to real-time inventory control by supermarkets to avoid shortages in certain consumables? Sure. Yeah. So uh, just in time inventory, uh, you know, a lot of the conversations was uh, the number of years we were implementing just in time inventory did it put us in the situation we're in today? Um, and I would say no. Uh, you know, in blue sky days, we still have another issue. As a country, we waste a lot. 27% uh, of all the food that goes into a home is wasted. So we still need to work on that. And um, Tom will be able to speak to this probably a lot more eloquently than me, but there is safety stock within the industry. Many uh, manufacturers maintain that safety stock anywhere from two weeks to 12 weeks uh, to deal with situations like what we're dealing with on a smaller scale, right? If we have a natural disaster and we need to get goods to a certain part of the country, uh, then we can do that. If even as simple as something as an ad that went uh, much better than planned, that safety stock comes into play. We did have that safety stock for this. And we had that safety stock um, and we used it. We used it very quickly, which was a good thing because we had it to be able to use. Um, but now what it means is that as those machines are producing that food, a lot of times that inventory is not even going to the forward warehouse. It's going directly to the retailer's uh, distribution center or the wholesaler. Thanks, Doug. I'm going to actually, I've got a question for you, Brent, from one of our participants. Right. Has there been any discussion about the military or National Guard stepping in to assist with transportation? Uh, I've not heard it. Uh, uh, you know, we talked to the, the American Trucking Association and all the rest of the associations that lead our, our industry, and I've not heard much of that uh, talk at all. There's There's been a, in the last 10 years, there's been a concerted effort to recruit uh, ex-military uh, transportation uh, professionals over to heavy duty trucking, but not anything from a standpoint of a uh, government um, authorization for that. The, maybe the last question, maybe we'll get two more and we'll see. Um, it's actually kind of an agriculture question, so I'll pose it to any of you. Do you anticipate any problems with harvesting because of a lack of migrant workers? Tom, you want to start? Yeah, and I think it's an it's an issue that the industry is watching closely, um, just because, of course, you you have um, you know a growing season, you have a harvest season, and and you have to have a harvest like at some point, um, and you have to have workforce to do that. Um, and so that's an area I think that's being monitored and looked at really closely in terms of how do you ultimately facilitate that. And Doug, I can transition that over to you. Yeah, I mean, I think we we were much more concerned about it uh, a number of weeks ago, simply because of visas, right? And so the government quickly responded to that. Uh, Secretary Purdue quickly responded to that. I think that the unknown now is if that workforce has actually uh, gotten the uh, disease in their country, the, the virus in their country, and they're not able to come. Um, so we depend on that workforce and I want to say the number was pretty large, like 250,000 um, that come across the border. Um, Canada, I know um, what they're actually doing is, as migrant workers come into Canada, they're being asked to uh, quarantine for 14 days before they actually go to work um, in the fields and doing their their uh, picking and, and uh, um, harvesting. So um, it's definitely something we're watching very close. Uh, you you probably saw on the news over the last couple of days, again, because of food service, we produce an abundance of, of vegetables. I think the one guy said, I guess not many people are making onion rings at home. They only like them when they come to the restaurant. Um, and it showed, unfortunately, a, a, a number of uh, onions that were being cultivated under, and they'll be replanted very quickly. Uh, so uh, we have a very resilient supply chain, um, but getting through this season and have enough workers um, to be able to, to do the picking and the packing is going to be pretty important. Um, and it'll probably have a bigger impact on us as we go further through the year, maybe in third or fourth quarter or first quarter of 2022. 20, uh, so Doug, Tom, and Brian, I want to thank you for your, sharing your expertise 
today. And I want to thank all the participants for your for participating and also the incredible amount of excellent questions. I know I didn't get to some of them. Sorry about that. Um, before we close, I wanted to just make sure that um, we have the people who've been hit uh, with the severe weather in the South in our prayers. Um, it's extremely important. And also, as we close out, just remember to, to stay safe. And we certainly hope to see you soon, but preferably in person. So take care. And again, see you soon. Bye-bye.